Beachmouth Postscript. My name is Larry. On this podcast, I have a guest each episode. They come armed with five pieces of music. You can LP, an EP, a song, it doesn't matter as long as we are talking about music. And on this episode, we talk about a lot of music. My guest on this episode is somebody I've been looking forward to speaking with for quite some time. He's a really old and really great friend of mine, Dave Neeson. Dave is the writer, artist for Gorgonessa Comics. Dave was also in The Mighty Harriet the Spy, as well as The Throttle Bottom, and uh, dozens and dozens of other bands. I've known Dave for a really long time. Uh, We go back early 90s, easy, 91, I think. He was at uh, the very first show I ever performed in uh, with my band Splinter, and uh, was a constant... uh, uh, supporter and uh, friend to all of my projects until I left for Portland. Uh, I was just, I had a really good time talking to Dave. Uh, that's really all there is to it. Um, he's a super smart guy. I've always respected him quite a bit and uh, and really, um, really cherish uh, our friendship. So, hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did. Uh, talking with Dave, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Uh, this is in two parts. This is part one. So it was so weird listening back to the uh Jamie episode for errors, knowing that, you know, the one we recorded before it was, was trashed, you know, <laughs> cause now it's like, it's almost like fucking, uh, your Kang who went back in time and did this <laughs> fucking recording. And now it doesn't exist because of some sort of, a you know, uh, time sort of paradox yeah. bullshit that, that somebody could come up That's with. That's true, and there's and there's proof of that since you guys mentioned our recording in his recording. Yep, yep. It's like a, it's like an echo memory. Oh, you I know, it. it's like you're and Jamie's episodes are like this huge crossover event where you have to buy like 15 <laughs> different issues to hear one fuck to read one fucking story. Yeah, That's what know. killed comics for me in the 90s, man. Was just it was all Dude, everybody. Was, that's what that's what killed the mainstream hero comics. Period. terrible idea and and, you know it's like i'm really surprised that marvel has able been able to execute the whole universe thing like the movies or hate them with the success you know i'm surprised they've been able to pull that off you know it's kind of like you know um if comics fans were annoyed with the crossovers of the nineties, the fact that they were able to do this huge thing is just kind of, I mean, it's impressive. I mean, I think maybe I like 50% of the films, you know, and that's just mm-hmm. because of how my, my tastes are, you know, and um, I always get kind of weirded out when you read stuff online about people like, well, that's not how the comics went. It's like, well, that's fine. Yeah. You're yeah. partially wrong. And, you know, it's not for you anymore, dude. It's for other people. No, exactly. You know? And I, so. I, and I honestly think that like, um, the success, the success of the movies is not that linked, not that tied to like the failures of the comics during that time. Like 
The characters were great. There's like some really great classic stories to mine for ideas. So now you just, you put a different budget behind it and put it in front of a different audience. Yeah. A much larger audience, you know? Yeah. I just, I, a buddy of mine and I were talking about the DC films and I said, you know, other than the Nolan Batman films and then the Tim Burton ones and Richard Donner Superman, I said, DC has not really been has not made a movie that's really worth watching yeah i was i was curious to hear your take on that as a dc fan i kind of like the first wonder woman movie i actually like it a lot um it was good i felt that the end was i i can't explain it but it's the same type of disappointment that i felt watching wandavision oh i liked wandavision well no i i liked it until the end there was more going on there. Like both yeah, yeah, that yeah. movie and WandaVision, there was a lot going on, like some really cool stuff and things that were, were hopeful about. And then they just sort of had, oh, here's the big bang up at the end. Yeah, I was no, like, you're uh, right. You're right. They do. They follow that format. Like you better wrap it up. Yeah. And I was, <laughs> I was a bit annoyed by that, you know, and it kind of like, it was, it was frustrating. I think it was a great series overall. It was fun to watch just, and them pulling in those ancillary characters from other films that was pretty neat, you yep, know, yep. sort of tying, tying that bow. Yeah, um, I, agree. I thought Falcon and Winter Soldier was just much better. It was more um, interesting. See, it I was, felt, I need, maybe I need to go re back, go back and rewatch both because I felt like that one had a much more severe. Here's the last episode. Get it all in there. I, I felt like it was racing the entire time. So I was okay with it. Like really? even the first episode, because I felt like that was like the slowest thing I've watched in a while. I mean, it was, it, it felt like it was racing because I kind of, maybe because I kind of only knew, I already knew what was, where it was headed it, in my, so I was like, just sort of watching it. And I think they were smart in both instances for both series that they kept each episode a half hour. I think the Netflix uh, Marvel stuff suffered because they did way too many episodes of each series <laughs> and they were an hour. Like they could have done, they could have done all those in seven or eight episodes if they're going to keep them in an hour. No, you know? I agree. Yeah. I mean, the Daredevil one, the first season of Daredevil was fucking great. I loved it, you know, yeah, but I thought it was really good. Yeah. It was like, you know, diminishing returns after that, you yeah. know, um, the only other thing I was really pleased about was they actually kind of played the Punisher as a psychopath, like somebody yeah, I, you should like, kind of like not like, you know, instead I, of, yeah. you know. I like that. It was funny. My brother's critique of uh, Netflix Marvel is one of my favorites because when, when Iron Fist first started, I was like, well, what do you think of Iron Fist so far? And he's like, you know what? He's like some irritating Portland dude who thinks it's cool to be homeless. So I'm pretty sure I can't watch it. <laughs> And then, and then every time I watched it after that, I was like, oh shit, that is kind of how they're playing Danny Rand. <laughs> that, that was, that was bad casting. I know that there was a, like a lot of people upset about uh, the racial component of it, but I was just like, but that's who that character is. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could change it and I'd be completely fine with that, but you know, it's like, well, that's the whole point. He's not, he's not from there. Right. And therefore that's part of the problem one of the problems he has to face is feeling like a a, a phony you know so totally, yeah um 
but yeah that, that, that was but yeah the dc films have just they haven't been good Zack snyder i think is uh a pretty terrible filmmaker yeah, yeah. I mean, he. The, I think the Watchmen was about as good as it could be, and I enjoyed it. But it's really hard to fuck that up. I mean, he would have had to try really hard to fuck yeah, that I up. Mean, it's it's all there. Yeah. It's like, here's your screenplay. Um, you know, I have no problem with, uh, Henry Cavill as Superman. I thought Michael Shannon was a great General Zod, but it was just written so poorly. I was it was just bad now was, have you committed to watching the snyder cut or are you still just going off the original version i watched it that was it it was even worse because it was longer and it didn't it, it didn't add it didn't add any it, people you know you have people who live and die by that guy's stuff and i just don't see it i don't see it you know i mean his idea of uh of uh an epiphany or a pivotal moment in the film is to pull something from you know uh Pull, pull a song that has some sort of meaning in our broader culture and insert it there with a bunch of slow-mo and special yeah. effects. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, fuck you, dude. <laughs> I think that's like, I think that's his greatest failing in a Watchmen for sure. Yeah. I just think that those movies are like, <clears throat> or at least for me, to my taste, I'll use I statements. Yeah. They're, they're way too melodramatic. Everything that I like about superhero comics is about like bombast and color and like pop sensibilities and like those dc superhero movies are like really fucking heavy-handed and i don't and i don't care for that and that's i think that's why i prefer the disney marvel thing because at least they're like at least they're like pretty campy yeah you know? i think i think the only one the only character you really should go that way with and get away with that kind of weight really is batman and i'm not a batman fan necessarily i just think, happen to think that those movies were pretty well made no, I agree. I, um, I I agree. But fucking Richard Donner got it right with Superman way back in 78, 79. Yeah, those are great. Those are I remember, fantastic I remember movies. seeing that first one in the theater with my dad when I was like five. And I still like it that much. He's still, he's still the best Superman. I mean, you know, and Kevin Conroy is still the best Batman. So... <laughs> <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> the, that's the weird thing. The, DC's animated output has been fantastic. Yes, like that whole Superman, Batman, and then into Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. That's all fucking great, you know. It kind of makes more sense anyway because it's it's it come it stems from uh, drawings to begin with. Yeah, you know. Yeah. The the urge to bring them to life is. I mean, I'm into it sometimes, but I don't. I would. I'd much rather see like high budget cartoons of these comics. I'd way rather see that. Yeah, yeah. I thought. Um, I thought the Killing Joke was pretty good, you know, the film. I have I have not seen that. Adaptation. Yeah, I I saw it at the theater uh, when oh, it came wow. out, and then I bought the DVD. It was pretty good. It was pretty decent. It it's no it's it's note for note the same thing as the uh, the comic. It's not it. There's no difference. It's you know the the only thing that's a bit jarring is listening to Mark Hamill do the joker in that context like, yeah no yeah, no yeah. i i love i love him as the right, joker you're crossing sensibilities between like and, and the animated series and this like grant morrison fucked up thing yeah. so, right i get it and it's kevin conroy doing batman too so Who's it's kevin conroy i don't, I don't he's know. the voice of batman from batman the animated series oh okay okay he's oh, the, wow. he's okay, the so, he's the so that's batman. a lot that's a he's lot to kind of have to digest <laughs> while you're watching an adaptation of that 
And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the commissioner Gordon guy is the same voice too. Like oh, <laughs> I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> it's good. It's if you like the, if you like the comic, it's, you know, it's definitely good. Um, we'll get off of comics in a second. Um, but one of the things that popped in my head watching Falcon and winter soldier was they sort of reintroduced like the super soldiers thing. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I text you about this or not, but you didn't. And I'm offended. Well, it popped in my head and you should be offended. Uh, <laughs> Cause it's <was> totally deliberate. <laughs> you need to start sending me all your comics texts. <sighs> well, I sent this to my brother and he didn't know what to make of it, but I told him, uh, I said, you know, now that they've sort of made the super soldiers uh, serum, something that other people are going to have access to in the Marvel cinematic universe. It really wasn't. It was just cap and what red skull, right? right? They reintroduced it in the series. And I said, what Disney needs to do is pretend it's 1982 and, and make an adult film like they tried to in the early 80s with dragon slayer and stuff like that (laughs) with paramount and stuff but what they need to do is they need to hire david cronenberg and they need to make man thing a one-shot film not a part of the thing but just make man thing david cronenberg do it because it's all body horror and then just say this isn't for the kids you adults come see this i'm with it and still have it tied still have it tied like intrinsically right. tied, but they don't need to make any other movies and he doesn't need to be a part of the universe at all. Just the one shot film. And I, I thought that was a stroke of genius. My brother goes, why would anybody want to do that? And I'm like, because man thing is awesome. He goes, I prefer swamp thing. I'm like, well, that's fine. They're both ripoffs of the heap anyway. So <laughs> who cares? <laughs> I mean, yes. Swamp thing has, has, his, has his, uh, you know, benefits, you know, in the hands of Alan Moore, but, man thing is always cooler yeah but if that you know what honestly if that had never happened if people like alan moore and uh who drew that uh toddleman and uh beset Mm -hmm. if those if those people hadn't done that you would tell everyone would prefer man thing yeah even though bernie wrightson he drew the first series right he's like a master yeah that first series is it's really boring and dumb so i just if that I, second thing had never happened, everyone would prefer a man thing. Everyone. Well, the, the great thing about the first series is like it's it is a bit slow, but his artwork makes it for me. Mike Plug does a few things in the first series, I think. Oh, I, didn't know that. I, I, I might that. be wrong about that. I know that they're that those guys kind of I don't know how they're tied exactly, but I know like when it comes to like horror comics and stuff like that, those are two guys you kind of sort of um Oh, I know what it is. I he I don't know that he did anything at all. I think I got confused because one time I was watching uh, Wizards, and this is a long time ago, and I thought, wow, that's kind of like Wrightson-ish. And my brother said, no, that's Mike Plug. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, ah, okay. Because he did a lot of the character design for yeah, yeah. that. Um, so how, you know, I know how long you've been doing it, but how long have you been uh, doing Gorgonessa? Uh, uh, I've been doing it, I guess, for about two and a half years now, maybe yeah. three. Has it been something you've been thinking about for a long time? Um, no. <laughs> um, the character is something that I've been doodling for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've obviously been really into drawing for a long time, but um, I never 
for whatever reason, it never occurred to me to try to make a comic, maybe because I thought it was like too difficult or because I didn't want to have to write it or whatever the, the fucking reasons and setbacks are to prevent me from doing that. I, but I feel like I kind of, everything kind of came together where like I wasn't in a band. I didn't feel like being in a band. I was kind of uh, wrestling with like my art life, like, uh, you know, what's the next art show? Am I going to do another art zine? What am I doing? And I just, I felt like if I made a comic, honestly, it would make it easier to think about that stuff because then it's just like, oh, okay, you come up with a story and then you draw the story. It's different than trying to like dig and scrape and look for like an idea of like what your thing is going to be. You know what I mean? Like it just, yeah. it, it seemed like a, um, because I love comics so much, it just seemed like a really easy way to kind of get the ball rolling and get me locked into a very productive mode, which is what I was craving. Was it always an either or proposition? Because I mean, I've known you forever and I don't know. I mean, I know you always drew and you always did, no, you know, stuff with your zines. But I mean, as far as like, because um, Gorgonessa seems to be like, you know, it's a big undertaking. You actually got comics made, you know? Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, then maybe I'm taking too much, maybe I'm reading too much into what you were just saying, but, you know, when you were, knee deep into playing music what did did art really take that much of a backseat no no and especially um you know especially when i was younger during like curtain spy days it was pretty like 50 50 okay um i don't think that uh one has really never taken a backseat to the other it's just kind of coincidental that i got to a point in my life where i wasn't interested in like actively doing music on that level for a period of time Right. But I, but I did really want to like, I mean, you know me, man, like I just, I wanted yeah. to be making, I wanted to be making something. And I guess that's where, and I decided like, well, try to make a comic. You might not be able to do it. It might be, it might be too hard. It might be too much work. You might not be able to figure out uh, artwork and storytelling married together like that, but you know, it'll be something to do. It'll be fun to try. Have you always, have you always been, um, this self-motivated um i guess yeah i don't know i don't know <laughs> uh so well it's interesting that you asked that because i think that bands bands are not particularly self-motivated that's a very social experience that's a, well, that's, a that's a team and yes. so maybe so maybe i haven't always been this self-motivated because when you're on a team and you're pushing each other it's really easy to like map out goals and how you're going to like go to these goals together and so you know maybe i did kind of feel like i was floundering with art like what am i what am i doing why am i doing this what i want to do and so i had to kind of like think about it and i was like you should probably try to make a comment because like how many years am i going to go trying to be like a pop artist that makes work that looks like comics why don't you just try to fucking make a comic yeah well, I mean, I, I sort of agree and disagree with what you're saying about this about bands because I think that it still takes. I think, given whatever your role is in a band, uh, it still requires a lot of work. Oh no, yeah, for sure. And, and the rela in the relationship, the relationship you're building with your bandmates requires a ton of work, and I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> I mean, I know, well, I know from some of the characters you've been in bands with. Um, 
even under the best of circumstances, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I've been in, I've been lucky, you know, uh, not to make it too much about myself, but like, there are a couple of people who I've played music consistently with for 15, almost 20 years. And one guy I'm playing with, it's approaching 25. Wow. Right. But broadly speaking, it can be real, a real fucking challenge. Um, was it, was it a challenge doing speakeasy? Was it a challenge to get that started? And I'm, cause I'm, I want to start there. I know we, in our last uh, twilight no. zone, our, our last twilight zone episode <laughs> that will never see the light of day. We didn't really touch on them, but no. I felt like maybe I uh, sort of missed the boat with not at least, you know, no, I'd like touching that. on would, that a little bit. I, yeah, I know. I agree with you. I would like to talk about that. Cause um, so in, 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 there are things about it that are hard to remember because it's a long time ago. Yeah, but um, high school, right? High school. Uh, I guess that band started when I was in, all right, when I was in the tenth grade. I really wanted to get a band going, and uh, my best friend at the time, Matt Ricchetti, uh, he was the drummer in Speakeasy. Mm-hmm. Um, we had been friends since fifth grade, and our friendship started with like Dungeons and Dragons and G.I. Joe figures and then moved into like uh, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and then moved into like skateboarding and then we discovered punk together through skateboarding like a lot of people and I was like you know I really want to start a band what do you think about I don't know if I was like, what do you think about playing drums? Or if he was like, I think I'm gonna learn how to play drums. But somehow in the 10th grade, it was like, all right, you're gonna learn how to play drums. We're gonna start a band. Had you, you, you had already been playing guitar? Yeah, I started taking guitar lessons in the <clears throat> seventh grade. Okay. Um, and uh, so, okay, so the way Speakeasy started was Matt started taking snare drum lessons. And we would, in my room, we would learn every song on the, the first minor threat album or like the album version of the first two EPs. Mm-hmm. We would learn all of those songs on guitar and snare drum <laughs> with no other accompaniment. And that's how that band started. <laughs> and then different characters from our high school would come over to like be the singer, which just meant they would like kneel on the floor and like yell into the boom box that we were recording the guitar and snare drum versions of these songs. Wow. Onto. And then um, at some point, our mutual friend also through skateboarding, Eric Smolin bought a bass and started taking bass lessons. So then naturally he was our bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, before we met Brian Suida, we had a first, we had a different singer. Uh, his name was Craig Anderson. He also went to our, to our school. He was a really good skateboarder. Um, cool guy, fun guy, but like way cooler than us. Like girls actually liked him and he was like a star on the soccer team like you know it's kind of too good for us in in those kind of like high school ways and so naturally over time it didn't work out um i met suita i worked at the pizza counter at beachwood mall and brian suita came up to order pizza and he had giant x's on his hands and i like couldn't believe that i was seeing a straight edge kid out in the wild not at a show not at a skate park but at the mall and so I just started talking to him. And then we started skating together and then he started singing for our band. Okay. Um, so to answer your question, whether it was hard, it was hard in the sense that we were learning how to be a band together. 
because none of us had any fucking idea how to do it. But that also makes it really easy. And it was also weird and easy because we somehow ended up playing shows with like integrity and face value, even though we were like little children who couldn't play. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like, you know, when you look at your list, um, two of the bands on here are pretty formative and speakeasy does not sound like either, which is perfectly (laughs) awesome because you know, a lot of people, when they start bands, myself included, you're kind of looking at what you're listening to a lot. And it sort of comes through. And um, I want to talk about uh, the Void Faith split. If I could have started a band that sounded like Void, I would have, but I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I always said that, you know, my original uh, intent with splinter when joe and i were concocting the ideas you know we were still in high school before we did anything i knew he played drums i said yeah i want i don't, I don't want to be in a straight edge band even though at the time i was straight edge so i don't want to be in a straight edge band i said but i do want to sound like ssd control i want to sound in unhinged i want it to be real fast and he goes oh well we could like mix that with like you know dealing with the dri i'm like that would be perfect you know (laughs) there's like some stuff there that you can make happen but of course you know that's just not how it came about you just don't sometimes you just don't have the ability or yeah or the circumstances aren't right for that um that's interesting i don't think we ever in speakeasy we ever had a talk like that like we should we want to sound like this with this it was kind of like we learned all those minor threat songs and then the first song we wrote on our own matt the drummer had an idea for a song that he wrote lyrics for and he hummed it to me and I figured it out on guitar. Mm -hmm. But it was never like, we should try to sound like, I think that what, by the end of it, we were trying to sound like some like ridiculous combination of like Dag Nasty, Beyond, Gorilla Biscuits, Fugazi, like way too many fucking influences. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for like a group of kids that like, you know, for all intents and purposes, can't really play. Right. Well, I think that's why I had the conversation with Joe because I, I I had a real in my head I thought in order for this to work, you have to map it out. Like, cause I'm not I'm not naturally an artist, you know. Like, I don't have artistic tendencies any more than I have athletic athletic tendencies, you know. I, but so in my head I thought, well, this is how you do it. You say, well, you don't want to sound exactly like this, but this is kind of what I want to do, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but so how early on, well, how much prior to speakeasy was it that you heard that void faith split? Do you think, or was Um, it pretty much around the same time? I think it was around the same time because that's definitely not one of the first punk records I heard that would have to be by 10th grade, like my second year of, uh, hunting for stuff. And that's when we were starting to like, that's when we were starting to learn those minor threat songs. <laughs> so when the first time I heard Void um, was on the um, the comp, the Flex Your Head comp. Okay. And I was like, man, those songs are fucking great. So then the next time, you know, maybe not the next time, but sometime after that, that I went record shopping, I I came across that and I was like, oh, I'm gonna get that because I love those songs. So are you are you able to articulate what exactly about the Void side is superior to the Faith? side because i certainly can there's a lot of art there's a lot of arguments like a lot of people are pushing back against the old 
void versus faith thing. There's, there's people I know who are like going around saying, well, most people will just say that about the void thing. That's just kind of like for it's, cool points. And I'm like, that's, I'm like, you can't, no, that's not. Yeah. I think, it. I think that's a fair, just right there. You can't, is a fair argument. Cause you can't really put your finger on it. Like it just, it has a, um, from top to bottom, it has a character and a like atmosphere and an attitude that is so unique and, and just, it's it's raucous it's weird it's it sounds like it's on the verge of falling apart the entire time it's playing but it doesn't and that's exciting the um the guitar playing i think for early hardcore or really just in general it is visionary the singer's voice is fucking crazy i've heard plenty of hardcore singers up to that point that either tried to sound like really sincere or really tough that's the first time I ever heard somebody who sounded frightening, who certainly wasn't trying to sound frightening. It's just what it sounds like. Like it's, I mean, it is for the time that it was made for the genre of music that it portrays. It is so fucking weird. Like it would be avant-garde if it weren't so completely unpretentious. It just, it has everything going for it. Yeah. The guitar tone alone is something that was really unique. I mean, 
um yeah a lot of people i think the only the only other guitar tone that i can think of that really kind of matches that that early on would be um greg and dez's on damaged yeah you know as far as like just it being so feral and nasty sounding yeah. and yeah. like you said earlier unhinged in a way but the funny thing was it took two guitars for that lp to sort of match not that they were trying to match bubba dupree but bubba dupree was just it was just him and there was yeah. it was it was you know a lot of people are like well that's kind of like a lot some people i've know who are a lot of people i know are now saying you know that's where you can kind of start seeing like a lot of the metal influence was in that record and i don't know that they were actually looking to do that i haven't read anything by them i don't know them but i i think that that is one of the most punk of the hardcore early hardcore era that there was yeah, i mean agree, agree strongly because you can kind of like like you like all things you point out it's weird it's it's strange like it, it, it and you have that the way the record sounds and you have that that cover art yeah the bubba Dupree did that art too that's like weird ass looking shit like it's not it's not at all you know um i always tell people like that's as i love that record very very much and i i often wish i would have had the ability or um some way to sort of capture that sort of thing i wish i because i don't that's just one of those records that you can aspire to make yeah but you just won't <laughs> you just you just won't do it because yeah. you know well, and you you can it seems i mean it seems fairly obvious that they kind of did it by accident i mean the songs are great but you know the you've got a group because they're what how old are void when they made that record they're like 16 17 yeah late teens so they're, they're, at best they're putting their faith in like ian mckay and jeff nelson's hands and they just so happen to be super fortunate to have like that don zantara guy who just can figure out how to record any band he hears hmm. you know what i mean like and that's not to take anything away from how great those void songs are right it's just that's a, like a perfect storm of like incredibly creative band super motivated guys doing their own record label who have access to this adult who's just really sensitive to what he's hearing and knows how to capture it correctly and i don't, I don't think a lot of people give those types of folks enough credit because uh, i was listening to an interview with the bass player for the band cannibal corpse <clears throat> and he said that one of the problems with early death metal is that um until people started going down to Morris Sound in Florida, nobody knew how to record death metal. Like they couldn't make it sound right. Like there was mm -hmm. just so them having Don Zantara is like that's a huge deal. You yeah, know, I mean, he is like he has got to be in just a huge part of the whole trajectory of that label and that scene. Yeah. Good for and, them. And think about and think about how different a lot of those bands sounded. You know, minor right. th minor threat. Um, even S even the SOA single. And you, you have know? to think that the first when they first started going to him, you know, you've you gotta imagine that he's like a little bit older. He's probably really into underground music and weird music. So he like he kind of understands and is intrigued by punk. I, I'd find it pretty hard to believe that he had any frame of 
any like specific frame of reference for minor threat before that happened. No. And he turned around the boilerplate of what a perfect hardcore record is supposed to sound like. Right. That is someone who is very dedicated to their craft, who is just listening, paying attention, and just fucking nailing it. Well, and think about the frame of reference that was lacking when it comes to Roy. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what frame of reference? I think the closest approximation prior to something sounding that unhinged and that reckless would be maybe Germs. But they're it, they're far and away a different band. Like, yeah, but I, I see where you're going with that for there, sure. There's there's a level of heaviness with Void that just doesn't exist with Germs, you know. Yeah, um, but there's still that kind of like lead guitar and like yeah, you know, pretty wild confrontational vocals. Well, and the way they played as well. Although I think it's funny because when you listen to Germs GI, uh, they sound way more accomplished than any video or live audio well, documentation yeah. would, would lead you to believe yeah, it's, a, it's a very forgiving uh document <laughs> um so i guess i i, I want to segue into the second record and we'll i want to talk more about your bands too but i sure. want to segue into black flags damage because um you know I, I sort of mentioned them earlier when i was talking about the guitar sound for damaged which i think is i think that's the best they ever sounded on record was that particular one i agree um and I also sort of want to point out that I feel that Spot as a producer really hindered everything after. Now, I love the records after, don't get me wrong. But, um, and he was somebody who was embedded in punk rock, you mm -hmm. know, and he didn't know how to record. <laughs> so, I know, I know, I know. Like, it's, but I, I know. Want, but it's I wonder. disappointing because some of the, a lot of the songs on, a lot of the stuff after damaged are like are great they're they are loud explosive punk songs but the production it's almost like i would say for me there's like too much separation like damage has that kind of like um everything's smushed together yeah. but you can still you can pick out each guitar each part of the drum kit the bass the singer you know what i mean like everything's represented and you can hear it but it's all kind of smooth together. And I don't think that they ever had that again after that.
when did you first hear that record? Was that was that one you caught on pretty early on, or it's was probably it... it's probably the same year? That's all kind of like second wave for me. Um, again, I think that my friend Matt, the drummer from Speakeasy, he bought it and we went to his house and listened to it, and then I made a tape of it like right away because it really. I don't know. It like captured my imagination because like he and I discovered like classic rock and heavy metal together in, uh, in junior high. And then when we started listening to punk, we both kind of agreed that it was like, was more interesting because it was more like immediate or aggressive or guttural or whatever it was, but I still really liked riffs. Uh You know, like I wanted to learn how to play guitar because I loved riffs. I was like, really, I am still really obsessed with the notion of like kicking ass on guitar you know like I just I love that right and um damaged is a record that is built on riffs and riffs that like kick ass and like riffs that are hooky and catchy and stay in your head but they're still like ugly and jarring you know like yeah they they didn't forget how to actually write a song yeah Right. You know, there's, there's a hook there and it's like, um, I remember the first time I heard it, it was, that was one of the first punk rock records I ever heard. In fact, I think it might've been either first or second. It was definitely, (laughs) it was definitely one of the first two I bought with my own money. Mm. I bought that one and leather bristle studs and acne, which I love to this day. I think GBH is an unheralded bait. I think they are so much fun and great and just amazing. Present night, we can't move, but the wind comes and the autumn moon. 
you know that i understand they're an acquired taste for some folks but i like gbh man but um with damaged i remember listening to it at my cousin's house because it was her record collection and i'm like oh this is this institute's punching this mirror or, or whatever you know and i'm like well let me put this on you know because i was sort of like just now at that point taking ownership of music you know but i'm coming from like a black sabbath perspective you know mm-hmm. and um i i listened to the first side and i walked away from it not because i didn't hate it but because i didn't know what to make of it i'm like this doesn't sound like you know like i had no frame of reference at all like i didn't <laughs> have i didn't have any ramones i didn't have dead boys i didn't even have real basic rudimentary punk rock to look at to sort of say, oh, well, you, here's this, and then you can s- extrapolate this, right? Mm-hmm. right. I, I didn't have that. I'm just coming from like, what? I don't know what this is, you know? And I listened to the second side, and that was even more baffling because those songs were even more... Dude, it gets way darker. <laughs> yeah, and it was... <laughs> you know, a I mean, TV party to lighten the mood. Or Six Pack, which... Or Six you know, Pack. And, right. and both, those songs, both those songs work as satire. They're dark in their own way. You know, they're very, uh, it's, you know, conceptually, yeah, the, the yeah. tone is off. Oh, yeah. Conceptually, sure. it totally fits in. Yeah. But I remember just, you know, I sort of like, I was really, I think the hook for me, even though he's not my favorite vocalist, eventually was his vocals. Because I, I, once I realized, I'm like, oh, once it sort of dawned upon me, okay, these, this is a vehicle for somebody who's pissed, right? Right. And this guy sounds pissed. And so whether or not I felt whether or not I believed in music as a medium for at at that time, I definitely believe it now. But at that time, whether or not I believed music was an appropriate medium to express that type of anger, it didn't matter because I believed that he was genuinely that mad. And that sort of (laughs) authenticity like sort of i'm like okay well then there's something here to this but i don't know whether i buy the whole and i don't even know if i was thinking about in that way but i hadn't you know black sabbath didn't sound angry it sounded menacing right it sounded scary but it didn't sound angry now later on you could sort of look back and like well there are some angry moments there but with black flag it sounds like, like a pretty angry song yeah yeah i mean you know but Damage was just it was like kind of a benchmark record for me as far as like once I started playing music I'm like I, I want to make my own damaged it doesn't it I yeah, didn't want it I to see. sound I didn't want it to sound like that because I was looking more to the two influences I was talking for because I thought I was capable of doing that right but I wanted to make something as good or at least shoot for that and after a while totally. you just you just sort of have to give up that notion because it's just <laughs> it's time and place and you know all those fucking guys i mean if there was a wink weak link and i don't think there was it would be robo but des kadan yeah, is a, he's he's good he's perfect on that record like he's, he's perfect. perfect he is perfect yeah. but i mean you know des kadena is fucking a great guitar player greg Ginn is definitely a great guitar player and influential as fuck which only people now are really talking about um mm-hmm. chuck dukowski's a great bass player yeah, he's a good bass he wrote player a lot of the lyrics yeah and you know 
Rollins happened to be on their best record. That was luck, right? You know, but I can't, I, no, 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 no. I was going to say, but I'm not going to knock the dude. I'm because after that, you know, he, he applied himself admirably to everything they did after that. And then those first two Rollins fans records, come on. Those are great. Those are great. They're great. I've got a weakness knee. I've got a thoughtless mind. I've got a needless want. I can't unwind. I've got a heart.
I mean, I think he liked the smell of his own farts, but I know plenty of musicians. <laughs> Where did you get that term? And you I, said that about Josh Homme in an earlier episode. And I started laughing so loud when you said that. Well, I mean, it's, this, it's, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like saying somebody shit, they think their shit doesn't stink. So right. clearly they're like a, smelling it. How, how do they find out their shit doesn't stink? It is somehow it. so much grosser and also mo- more poignant when you put it that way. And it's probably more truthful because I could see this fucking asshole sitting around you know, cutting one and being like, yeah, that smells like roses, you know, fuck. I wonder, I wonder if Josh Homme would like the way Henry Rollins fart smells or vice versa. I'm sure Josh Homme doesn't like the way anybody's fart smells except for his own. (laughs) You know, at least Rollins will show appreciation for other musicians and actually kind of, you know, I will say that much about him. I I think he's, I think, I think he's a powerhouse vocalist. He, uh, stage presence is one of the best front men ever um you know he he has a lot of good things to say and he's thoughtful you know sometimes um you know and uh i think he's really good about here's an anecdote uh i was listening to his podcast and he was talking about the fall and oh, i didn't wow, i love the I, fall. I i i didn't know anything about them and this was 10 years no not 10 years ago like five years ago right okay i didn't know anything about the fall and i had i was looking at all the records and it was just daunting they have so many albums and i've heard you want to stick to the early stuff right and i thought that might be the way to go but he was talking about later stuff Hmm. and so just on a whim on a lunch break i straight up legitimately shot henry rollins an email and said look i'm whatever years old and i heard you talking about the fall and where do i start he sent me dropbox links to albums he ripped he said listen to these records oh that's so cool he sent me four (laughs) albums he said good luck it's worth it's you know very earnest good luck it's worth yeah. the journey or some shit like that you know that's amazing yeah. knowing is half the battle the other half is remembering you know some sort of bullshit like that but it was like all right that's cool i still think he's full of shit sometimes i think he really yeah, loves but himself that is cool that he, but he would take that the time is, to just to do that for somebody he doesn't know at all yeah but i mean that's part of that's part of what i appreciate about the guy you know yeah. any any little criticism any little snarky shitty remarks i might make about him you know um He's a music fan and I love and appreciate that, you know. Yeah. And I've heard that from I've I've heard that from a couple of other people over the years where they have reached out to him in a similar way either via email or like social media and he like completely engages with them and gets back to them and like strikes up like some amount of a conversation and you know for I think for someone that is like that much of a like actual celebrity that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean it's 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 very cool. Very cool. Um and damaged is just that's such a fucking monster record. It's, it's it's not like there's not that many i don't know I, it's in like a pretty short list for me of things that like i could listen to from the day i first heard it which is what like 35 years ago till now i could put it on like any day of the week and be like completely stoked yeah there's never I, been I don't a... think I've, I've never gone a year without listening to it many times yeah never there's a you know, and it, it's weird, and this is where I'm going to sound really old, but, you know, 
when I talk to a lot of younger people, like it's just not something that they, they care about. And that's not a criticism. I, I find it fascinating and I kind of wish they would like, I'm like, you might really want to check that out. And, but it, but it, but it's time and place and context and it's been so long. And, you know, I want to let um, younger people, let them have their own version of that. Oh, you it's, don't want to be another middle-aged white guy telling somebody what they should fucking think about something. Right. Yeah. It's, it's boring. That's boring. You don't need any more of that. Nope. That's boring yeah. and stupid. I'm not interested in gatekeeping, you know, but no. if I can steer somebody to it, if they ask I'm like, well, yeah, no, it seems like old fuddy duddy music, but you might want to check out black flags damaged. Because think of it that way, <laughs> you know, um, so you're oh, wait, speak- I want to say I want to no, say one more thing about Black Flag just a little anecdote because we were talking a little bit about like Black Sabbath and like listening to heavy metal in junior high. Yeah, go ahead. When I listened to heavy metal in junior high, I would buy Hit Parader magazine to like mm-hmm. cut out pictures of like, you know, the guitar players from Iron Maiden to hang on my wall. And in that magazine there was always an ad for Black Flag My War in the magazine. And like for me as like a adolescent suburban kid who likes heavy metal, mm-hmm. the my the name Black Flag and the artwork to the album My War, I could not wrap my head around it. No, at all. And then Larry, one day I was at the mall with my mom. We were at like J.C. Penney's getting my fucking school clothes or something, and there was some older teenager wearing a My War T-shirt. And like I, my head like exploded. I was like, "Oh my god, he knows! He knows what that fucking thing is."
I think it was funny because after I heard Damaged, the next record I heard by them was Slip It In. And I remember coming across the record cover when yeah. I was looking at the two, when I was going through Tammy's records, I'm like, this one bothers me. So I'm going to listen to the guy punching the window or the mirror right. first because <laughs> this one is really, I didn't know what was wrong with it. I couldn't quite fathom, but I just knew somehow. That wasn't a religious dude. I wasn't coming at it from there because clearly I didn't care. It's right. like Black yeah. Sabbath. Yeah. But there was just something really fucking seedy and gross about it. Dude. That I was just like, oh boy. Oh boy. Props to Pettibone, man. He is an off-putting artist. Uh, and some really good stuff too. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Like yeah, it's off-putting, but just it's unmistakable. I think that's probably one of the things that you know, to circle back to comics real quick, those those are my guy, those are the dudes who I think are my favorite artists, the guys who are, you know, really original and easily identifiable, like Jack Kirby, Bernie Wrightson, mm-hmm. Mike Plug. Uh, I really like this guy Kelly Jones a lot. Uh, he no, did some he did some issues. He did a some uh, mini series for the character Dead Man, who I love quite a bit. Um, I've got some actual tattoo artwork based on his stuff okay. and it's dead man it's you probably won't be able to see it really well but that's dead man oh okay i can kind of see it yeah, yeah. so i mean I, I, like, I made a note that i wrote down kelly jones dead man yeah um so but raymond pettibone is like kind of falls in that i think that's that's the i would imagine as an artist that's the most important thing is that people can identify your work just by yeah. one glance you know unmistakable so you're in speakeasy and, was. Um, and we played Clevo hardcore shows <laughs> at the Babylon, right? At the Babylon, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Was that where you were Which playing most ridiculous. of your shows at originally? Uh, yeah, I guess I think our first show somehow <clears throat> was out of town. It was in Erie, Pennsylvania, with Face Value and Endpoint, and it was because a high school friend of ours knew kids in Erie, mm-hmm. and she like, you know, she really didn't think much of our band, and she shouldn't. 
but she came to hang out one day like towards the end of our practice and she's like you guys are starting to sound like a real band i could probably get you a show in erie and so we said okay and so she did and we went and played our first show there and then so then we got so then like we had already knew like um we knew tony urba because we hung out at coventry all the time and he was like super nice to us yeah and like so then he we played and he saw that we could like kind of pull it off (laughs) you know so then like we ended up playing with this band a, a bunch of times and integrity once or twice i don't know it's just it's it's funny to think like you know, growing up with those being like the first local bands I ever saw, mm-hmm. it's kind of wild because like, you know, whether or not that sort of thing is like the thing that's closest to my heart or whether or not that's the sort of thing that really like motivated my path through music stylistically, mm-hmm. see, seeing those bands that were like, were local to my town who I could go see like any fucking weekend and they're like, incredible like they're so good live they're like you know for lack of a better word like utterly professional yeah they don't they don't fuck up they don't spend a lot of time between songs they fucking kill it every time that's you know it kind of distorted my view of like what it was supposed to be like trying to be a band you know i was like oh fuck you gotta be good did it make you want to take it more seriously though i did for sure yeah. But it's funny to think about, like, in hindsight, like, we had to look like children who found our instruments and learned how to play them on the way to the show, playing right. with them, you know? Because, <laughs> I mean, we could barely do it, yeah. you know? One of the funny, but it was cool. All those people were always really cool to us. Yeah. One of the funny anecdotes I have about we played a, a benefit show of a number of years ago six years ago now maybe five six years ago um sean wenzel passed away and he was i I remember yeah yeah. so we we played our first show in uh 20 some odd years and uh you know bob bob and joe and i reconvened with we uh, my buddy josh played bass because nathan wasn't available we wanted to add big metal who was in splinter at the very very end but he played bass but Mm -hmm. exceptional guitar player and so bob who had since having left splinter ended up playing music with a lot of like bigger artists to like playing big shows and stuff and doing all sorts of stuff he came at the first day of practice he turned to us and he he said to dave he goes show me where you're tuned at and dave goes okay bob goes that's what i thought and he turns me goes um yeah i was out of tune the entire time we were in splinter (laughs) <laughs> and i'm like what do you mean he, goes, he means every single song we wrote and every song we recorded is out of tune he goes and i suspected that you know a while ago but i never went back and listened to our stuff until we started doing this and i said well how did how did that happen he goes well you know the trick where you can tune using the one fret and you go down he goes, you're <laughs> supposed to adjust at some point halfway when you get to the higher strings i never adjusted I just went straight down no he went five all the way across yeah you gotta and, switch to four from g to b right he never did that yeah. and, <laughs> well it gave you guys your signature sound yeah so yeah so speaking of children just sort of figuring it out you know yeah yeah, yeah. and uh you know bob was 14 <laughs> when we started that band 
that's crazy that he's a full three years <laughs> younger than us you know so and i always to like speak to, to I always, a really quick anecdote to speak to what you're talking about bob playing with bigger people he was here in portland i don't know maybe like 10 years ago with somebody and he hit me up on like facebook to hang out and i was like dude that sounds awesome but um, i'm bartending tonight here's where i'm going to be at if you're still awake and out and about come by and just say hi at the end of the night and he mm-hmm. did which was rad yeah and he came in with you know either a bandmate or a friend that he was on the tour with and he walked in and i went bob money and his friend was just like full stop and looked at him and went bob money <laughs> like what is that <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny uh he just, actually that was his name to me yeah i mean it's he actually is he coined uh the nickname for dave uh johnson the guy who played with us he's he called him big metal because dave was a bigger guy and had really long mm-hmm. hair at the time and there are people who don't know bob don't know a goddamn thing about splinter but that is dave's name to this day big metal awesome big, big metal. metal yeah so good bob nickname, Mon- good nickname sticks man yeah bob money and big metal <laughs> but so yeah that was my anecdote as far as like looking or like children just picking up and figuring yeah. out their instruments yeah. but how many shows does speakeasy play uh i don't know not, probably not that i would i would ha- i would be hard pressed to believe it's more than like six yeah, because it's really it really took us like all of high school to fucking figure it out. We finally started playing like senior year, and, and then I and then I don't think that we played at all that summer. Yeah, I don't because I think spe- Speakeasy was done by the time you and I met. Yeah, for sure. And you know, as discussed in our time traveling episode, we met at, at your door in your dorm room in my Ver- dorm room, Verter Hall. Say, yeah. Was I with mutual friends that were visiting me? What's up? Was I with John? I think you were with Sean and and Nicole because I think I met John through you. I think then, like, after that meeting, I came down to Akron. I want to say we met at like Thursdays. No, you met John through Sean because I didn't introduce John to anybody. Okay, okay. And I don't mean that trying to be funny. That's not, <laughs> that sounds terrible. Or maybe that, I just, maybe I met him through Sean, but you were there. Cause I can, I, I have a memory of like hanging out, talking to you and you're like, oh, here it comes. And he was like walking down the sidewalk and he was kind of like yeah. standoffish, but then, you know, yeah. we, we hit it off pretty quick. Um, And so then we, I don't know if he was at, cause when Crunchface started, he was on Conmore court and then that moved to Thornton. Orton uh, is the one where he had the shows in the basement. Yep, in the basement, and you yeah. guys were in Throttle Bottom. And I'm trying to remember whether or not you played the very first show I ever played. I know Arms Length was one of them. Is that the show where we all wrote Splinter on our chests? Probably. So like, we did, <laughs> we did, but we didn't because Eland was on vacation in Ireland and he came back super jet lagged and he couldn't do it. We played like half a song and he couldn't do it. And I got like super pissed. <laughs> <laughs> or wait, were you doing Guillermo too? That's a, that's a later, that's a later crunch face show. I got asked to be in Guillermo at some point in time and I played one show with them. And then uh, what's the first guitar player's name? Is it Mike Taylor? 
I don't remember. I don't, whoever he, he showed up to like beat me up and I hid in John's room because like I don't fight people, you know. <laughs> but I don't he, I don't he heard that somebody else was playing guitar that night and he showed up and I hid upstairs till he uh, left. Why, why don't I I I believe you one hundred percent, but why do I not remember that? I don't know. Well, only I would remember that properly. Uh, yeah. No, but um so that might have been our- the naked angels show. Oh, I remember that show. I remember Rob R. Rock was furious. <laughs> He said he made some. I was looking at a Dear Jesus fanzine, mm-hmm. and he came up. He's like, "Yeah, you know that's offensive," and I'm like, "Yeah, you know I don't give a fuck." <laughs> you know, you're a Christian rapper. I don't give a shit about this or any yeah, of that. I just not good, that's not a good choice for anyone, sir. Yeah, I mean, he was. Yeah, but. Um, so Throttle Bottom was you and Sweeta and, and Kevin Geyer. Kevin Geyer and Matt Elon. Matt Elon. How did you so, uh how did Sweeta switch from vocals to bass? Did he played bass previously? No, he just um Brian, let's see. Let me try let me think. So Speakeasy kind of stops doing his thing, but Brian and I are still hanging out together all the time, skateboarding and stuff. And um I'm starting to talk to Matt about doing something together because I know he can play drums. Mm-hmm. And Brian knows Kevin because, um, let's see, Kevin went to Solon High School and Brian went to Orange High School, but Kevin would take a bus to Orange High School because they had a better art program and he was like, you know, teachers recognized something in him like, yeah, this kid's really good at art. So that's how they met. And Kevin and Brian were talking about starting a band. And me and Matt were talking about starting a band. So we just kind of like put it together. And Brian just bought a bass and figured it out. And you know, this is a point pretty in time. Pretty quickly, too. Pretty quickly, he was good. Yeah. This is a point in time where you could, these days, like if you, I hate to say that, like these kids today, but like Brian bought like a Rickenbacker bass and a Fender basement head and cabinet for like a total of $600. Yeah, that's ridiculous. just to start a band. You couldn't do that now. Like, no, the guitar alone would be stupid thing. The guitar alone would be twice that, yeah. you know, these days. But yeah, so he just bought it and, and figured it out. And we just started playing it. And we kind of like, we all kind of looked to Kevin a little bit for guidance and inspiration just because he's like a creative genius. And we were also, I think, wanting to do something a little more like uh, exploratory than what we were doing. And Kevin, Kevin liked hardcore, but he also kind of thought it was kind of dumb in a way. Wasn't or at least like or at least the stuff that we liked like you know like youth crew stuff you know yeah and you know he wasn't wrong and so we kind of followed his lead and we you know grew this band together and it was like really fun and exciting you did two demos right two demos uh the one had isosceles and i can't remember the other song but i remember i love the song isosceles <laughs> and i can't remember the other song but um and then the second demo when you second guys demo Second one was a four-track recording done by Dave's Hawkeye in Elon's mom's basement. And I wish I had it so bad because I want to hear it so bad. Because in my head, it's like the best sounding demo ever. But I don't have it and I haven't heard it in like 25 years. Where'd you record the other one? At that dumb place with the electronic drums. Oh, in Brooklyn. Uh, Peter yeah. Davis. I, can't really it. I think <laughs> yeah, Peter we Davis, did yeah. our demo there. Arms Link did their demo there. We did it yeah. because Strazak had suggested we go there. And he goes, yeah. he said, 
you're going to have to use the electric drums. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. It's like, what is wrong with that guy? Like, I'm not mugging a drum set ever again. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's... I, I know. know. Speakies are recorded there too. And that's just so weird because it's like, all right, your rates are good, but like everyone that comes in here has to like learn how to basically learn how to play a different instrument. Like it's not, I don't play drums, but I can't imagine that it like, it's not off-putting to just sit down and have to do a good job recording on this, these pieces of rubber instead of what you're used to. You know? Joe, Joe was so pissed off after that. He's like, I'm never recording again. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> he, Joe's, Joe is very, you know, um, sharp with his tongue in his own way in a completely different way than I am. And I, I, he, I remember him like shooting daggers, that guy just saying shit to him, just like, and the guy kind of took it because we were paying him, you know, but Joe right, was just right. like, well, he's probably used to it. I can't yeah. like who, everyone that went there had to have the same reaction. And they didn't sound good. No. I mean, there was nothing <laughs> you could do to make that sound good. It just sounded like, you know, a fucking you know, heavier Casio keyboard rumba selection on the fucking hit that, you know? Yeah. Um, so you guys did throttle bottom and then coming closely on the heels that when that was wrapping up, you conspired with the, Oh, 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 before I, I don't want to go too fast because I have to, I forgot to bring this up last time. And I don't know if I remember, if I, I don't I don't remember if oh, I told you I, I forgot forgot to you bring did this up. tell me you told and I made a note of it and I have a little notebook here next to me and I already forgot to remind you about that first I thing. want I want to talk about <laughs> the time that okay so there were shows going on in the crunch face basement and there was right. nothing else going on in Akron I mean from what I found out years later there was a couple bands or bands like the Nimrods and uh, other bands that were not at all a part of anything we were doing although mm. strangely enough the singer for the nimrods wasn't a band that was actually wildly influential to me and i just didn't know anything about the Who's nimrods. That? his name was pat beck he used to well, be what's in a the band he was in that was influential to you dim oh, okay. does it matter they were kind of like this is going to sound real dismissive they're kind of like a little brother band to hyper as hell Oh, okay, um, cool pat and those guys all went to high school together with hyper as hell and all that you know but Pat was, uh, he was a real, he's a real huge, he, he cast a long shadow in my life, mostly because we became friends later when we were in Don Austin. And whenever we went on tour, every tour we did, Pat went with us. And, you know, Pat was the older guy. Pat mm -hmm. was the guy who had been in hardcore longer than we had. And he loved our band and was just a great friend. And when he passed away, that was like really, really super hard on all of us. So anyway, um, I come to find out later that there kind of maybe was other stuff going on, but it was completely unrelated to what we all had going on. Sure. Yeah. So there's shows going on in the basement of the crunch face house and somebody caught wind that there were shows going on in Canton in a place called Garrow hall. This is mm -hmm. well before the Y I think it might've been Brian Strazak. Maybe and yeah, that sounds right. You guys throttle bottom played there. We did. And there's an incident that I like to call the speeding motorcycle <laughs> incident. I don't think I'll tell you, I'll tell you my version of it, how I remember it. Okay. And Cause I, I don't know how much I remember about this. Well, <laughs> other than like the main highlight, obviously. Well, at some point, uh, Elian came out from behind his drum set. I don't think Kevin was there. 
Am I no, wrong? it's when we were trying. We were Kevin. So the second year I thought about him, Kevin went to school in Columbus, and me, Matt, and Brian were trying to play shows as a three piece. Okay, so I wasn't wrong about that. I I thought to myself either Kevin just sort of said I'm not going to play this song or whatever, no, or he, he just wasn't there. I was basically just like, you know what? I can probably figure out how to play guitar and sing at the same time. Let's just try to play. No, go ahead. So, so anyway, Matt comes out from behind the drum set, and either you or Brian said this song is called Speeding Motorcycle. And you guys just started like wailing on your guitars and uh, just playing really fast. And um, Elaine was just screaming into the microphone, speeding motorcycle, speeding motorcycle <laughs> over and over. And this is going on for a good, maybe not quite two minutes, but definitely beyond 30 seconds approaching a minute. And the people in Kent were sitting like really close to you guys, just nod, like nodding their heads like there was a beat to any of this. And they were just it's a like, cover. <laughs> I, well, see, I didn't know that. I, you know, they're just like, you know, get checking us out. And Joe and I are standing where you guys are at. And um, Elan kind of looks over at Joe mm-hmm. and then he gets this stuff out and he coats his, his left arm with like, it looked to me just from a distance, looks like, like Vaseline. It was, it was rubber cement. It was rubber cement. It was rubber cement. Okay. <laughs> so he's covering his arm with it and he just he sort of moves over to joe who he'd already made eye contact with and i'm sort of watching this happen and he sticks his arm out and joe and he just keeps screaming speedy motorcycle the whole time this is going on he sticks his arm out and joe looks at me then he looks at eland pulls his lighter out of his pocket and lights his arm and his arm goes up in flames yeah and I don't mean like small piddling flames. I mean, no, it's like on fucking fire. And he starts <laughs> swinging his arm. I don't know if he was actually trying to hit anybody, but he was coming really close to people sometimes. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was also probably in a lot of pain at some point too. Cause I think, yeah. and I remember distinctly as people were like nodding their heads, like this is a great rock event. They were sort of like oblivious to the fact that this guy's on fire and like, bits of the rubber cement were coming off (laughs) landing on people's pants and on the floor and eventually i looked at joe and i said yo this is not good this is not good something's gonna happen and i don't know how it got put out but i don't remember i don't remember so there was there was there was a room there was a room adjacent to where the stage was at Mm -hmm. and i was back there and elian was wrapping his hands in wet t-shirts or whatever he get his hands on and i looked at him and he unwrapped to look at his hand i said dude that was what are you gonna do he goes i don't know this hurts i should probably go to a fucking hospital and he's like staring at it. he's clearly in shock or at least to me i remember him thinking like because it probably was it, it wasn't like his flesh wasn't melting but, right, but it, it was a pretty bad burn. It was a bad, bad burn. Yeah, a yeah. real bad burn. And we had to go to the emergency room. So he, all right, Speeding Motorcycle is a Daniel Johnston song that a friend okay. of ours used to play on their radio show on WKSR all the time. So it was sort of like in our um, social circle vernacular, you know? Right. Matt decides before we go play this show in Canton that he's going to set himself on fire for entertainment value but it's going to be okay because he's going to use rubber cement and it's just going to burn off and nothing's going to happen to him 
And I was kind of like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's how that's working. He's, he's like, no, no, it, it really is. And I don't know anything. And also like, you know, I loved how wild Matt was. I, I really enjoyed his fucking antics. So I was like, okay, cool. Matt's going to yeah. set the on fire tonight, you know? So, and I was like, well, how are we going to cover Speedy Motorcycle? And he's like, well, I'm going to sing it. You and Brian just play whatever. I was like, okay, cool. That sounds cool. And then it happened. And then it was like clear that he was like in trouble. And then we spent, you know, and you know, I'm sure you've been to the emergency room for a number of reasons, either as a kid or now as a parent, it always sucks. It takes for fucking ever. Yeah. And then after that, I was just like, no more of this. No more speeding motorcycle. <laughs> Never again in the emergency room. <laughs> That's my recollection of it. It may or may, it may be. Like none of it's fabricated, but that's distinctly. No, it, it was. I just, I, mean, I did no. Was... I, I distinctly remember the thing that I'm really, really just embedded in my head was he and Joe making eye contact, and mm-hmm. I've convinced myself whether it's true or not that they had that Matt didn't tell Joe to light him on fire prior to the set. Like in my head, <laughs> I just thought that Joe sort of like understood. Hey. I'm supposed to light this guy on fire. No, he definitely had to. They must have worked it out ahead of time. They probably Matt, did. Matt planned it before we got there that he was going to set himself on fire with rubber cement, but it was going to be perfectly okay because it would just be the rubber cement and it would burn off. My version's better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course it is. <laughs> hey, can we um can we pause for one sec because I forgot to pee before we got started? Absolutely. Speedy motorcycle. Won't you change me? Speedy motorcycle, won't you change me? In a world of money changes. Speedy motorcycle, won't you change me? Speedy motorcycle.
That's one of those things where, you know, looking back with a um, more mature perspective, probably not great for the people that were trying to get something going at Garrow Hall to have three idiot art students from Kent State show up and set themselves on fire when you're renting a, a hall from real grown-ups who are probably skeptical about letting you use it for your punk show anyway. Which is strange because Canton, you know, Broadly is a very conservative town, mm. very conservative town. And I'm really shocked that they ever were able to get anything at any hall going, regardless whether people were setting themselves on fire or not. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, they, they had, there was a show at Dogwood Park and um, we did a, a side band called Meat Hook. And uh, I remember turning the fire stingers on everybody in the place. Whoa. And <laughs> we got asked back and I said, well, Meat Hook's never going to play again. We only did it because Nathan couldn't play. So no splinter, we'll do Meat Hook. You know, right. it's just, you know, whatever. All right, that's the end of part one of my conversation with Dave Neeson. Part two is up right now. Go check it out. Thanks for listening.